Um, one of the reasons is very personal for me that this is difficult because uh, the lowest grade I ever got on any assignment from high school, college, grad school, any assignment was a paper on baptism right here at Ozark Christian College as a student. Uh, when I first turned it in, I, I actually, I felt pretty good about the paper. I thought it was a solid paper, put a lot of work into it. And when I first got it back, it actually had an F on it. And there was a little note from the professor. I, he said, I think this paper may have been plagiarized. Come talk to me. If, it, if you didn't plagiarize it, I'll raise the grade. So I went in and I told him, no, I mean, that's, that's my work. These are my ideas. I, this is, that's all me. And he's like, okay, scratched out the F, put a D. And, and he handed it back and, and more or less said, this is heresy. So, so plagiarism F, heresy D, good to know. Um, so I may actually have a heretical theology of baptism. Uh, we'll find out today. If I'm not allowed to uh, come back and teach tomorrow, I guess that's our answer. Um, but, it, but this is also a difficult subject, uh, just in terms of the question of relevance. Let's be honest, nobody was coming in today saying, man, I just, you know what I need today? I just need me some theology of baptism. You know, it's just really what I'm struggling with today. Uh, this does not quite have the same relevance uh, as maybe like a few weeks ago. When on Valentine's Day, Doug Welch preached about singleness, right? Singleness, dating, marriage, very relevant subject. He did a great job. We had people breaking up with each other after chapel. <laughs> taking, taking vows of celibacy. You know, very relevant topic. And this one could maybe feel not so relevant. Uh, we've, we've, most all of us have taken Acts class. So we've studied Acts 2.38, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Good verse. Good subject. Um, even in our own life, we may feel like, well, I've pretty well covered that. Uh, we might feel about our baptism, how we might feel about uh, high school graduation. You know, at the time, it was a really big deal. There was a celebration. Uh, but maybe the more time that passes, the less significant it can feel. Uh, but my hope today is that looking at some of what the Bible has to say about baptism, we can see that really it's just as relevant today as the day we were baptized. Because our baptism tells us who we are. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We have in Romans 6, I think, um, uh, maybe the most helpful passage in terms of getting at this theology of baptism, the meaning of baptism, or as John Stott says, the logic of our baptism. What's going on there? There's lots of verses that discuss baptism, encourage us to be baptized, but maybe Romans 6 is our most helpful passage at getting at the essence of what's happening in this moment. It's part of an extended argument about what it is to be a saved person. Throughout the book of Romans, ten times, here's what we, it means that we are saved. And Paul's already talked in the first few chapters about whatever your background, whether you're Jew, Gentile, however you came to this subject, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need the grace of God. All need His forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus. And so this comes in, in a series of significant passages about the amazing, generous grace of God and what it is for us to understand 
how it is to live in light of his grace. So in Romans chapter six, starting at verse one, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore baptized with him or buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And verse 11 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in this big extended discussion about being saved people, right here in Romans 6, he says, now it's possible for someone to hear that the message of grace is so abundant, And so generous that maybe we should actually just keep sinning. Because the more we sin, the more grace there is, right? And he's going to say, look, that is irrational. That's illogical for reasons I'll get to for a second here. But notice that grace really is that amazing. He really is going to hang out for a second in this idea that the massiveness of our sin, all it simply does is shows the massiveness of his grace. And in fact, if, if we aren't at times accused from time to time of being too radical in our expression of the, the greatness of God's grace, that maybe someone might think it's fine to just sin, we might not be preaching grace as radical as the grace that Apostle Paul is talking about because he feels the need to address that question. He begins by absolutely rooting our baptism in this idea that we are united with Christ in his death. Who are we? We are the ones who have been united with Christ in his death through baptism. Now there are other passages of scripture that talk about our salvation in terms of a death. Colossians 3, 3 and 4, it says, For you died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So many places the Bible talks about our salvation as a death and rebirth. Romans 6 says where that action happens, our baptism. God in his wisdom gave us this tangible, sensory experience of the profound transition that is taking a place when we are saved. 
You know, sometimes we will wrestle with the question, is, is baptism essential for salvation? Do we have to do it? And I, I'll be honest, I get annoyed by that question. It's an important question, but here's why I get annoyed about it. It takes something that was given to us by God for our own sake and turns it into something we have to check off a list to make sure we're good to go. As if God is sitting there in heaven with a checklist and saying, now, okay, did you do this? Did you do that? Oh, you missed one. I wish I could let you into heaven, but, you know, as if this is some hoop he just randomly assigned for us to jump through. No, he knows us. He knows our nature. And he gave us an immersive experience of the senses to help us get our minds around what's happening when we put our faith in him. Paul is saying, don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death? I'm sure many of you have a a baptism certificate commemorating the the time of your baptism. I never got one of those. I I never heard of those till I came to Bible college here. I guess you just buy them at the Christian bookstore. You know, I thought, I thought maybe those, I don't know, is there some big church office somewhere where they bless them? No, you just go buy them. Um, but that's cool. It's kind of like a little birth certificate. It helps commemorate. It's like your new birthday. But theologically, you know, in Romans 6, it's, it's just as accurate to talk about it as a, as a death certificate. And I've even wondered, maybe that would be kind of cool to, for somebody to, to create baptism certificates that are a little more, de- you know, skulls, grim reaper. I don't know if this would sell quite as well at the Christian bookstore. But that is absolutely a declaration of our death. Now, why does that matter? Maybe this sounds weird to put it this way. Jesus says if, if we're going to be those who have eternal life, we need to be reborn. And the separation between the old us, between the us that was controlled by sin, the us that was destined for destruction, and the saved us, is so cataclysmic, so new, that it can only rightly be talked about in terms of a death and rebirth. And uh, I used to think that the phrase miracle of birth was like a, a sentimental exaggeration. You know, the miracle of birth. It's so sweet. And then my wife and I had a kid. And I'm like, that is a miracle. How did any of us survive that? I don't, you know, and I don't want to get graphic, especially for those of you that haven't witnessed that. But those of you who have, you're like, I know, it's crazy. We come out squished and purple and gasping for air. And we have to learn very quickly how to breathe air for the very first time. And I just really think God in His wisdom knew we needed, we needed some way to get our minds around this. And that as we are vulnerable and we are plunged into the water and we come out gasping, trying to learn to breathe for the very first time the very breath of God, His Holy Spirit. He wanted to give us an anchor to look back to, to say, you know what, I must really be forgiven. That old me that was destined for destruction, that old me that was apart uh, apart from God, must really be gone. And Paul is saying, look, don't you know, that old you is so gone, and and this is why this matters to me. As I get to know many of you, especially those who grew up in church, to be honest, many of you, have this nagging, aching sense 
of shame and inadequacy. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not, I haven't done enough. I need to be more. I need to do more. I need to make a greater impact. I need to be more talented. I need to be more knowledgeable. I need to go out and make a difference in the world. So maybe, just maybe, God will approve of me. And Paul is saying, don't you know the you that was tainted by sin is dead? It's that done. And so Paul is saying, look back at your baptism and learn who you are. You are someone who has been united with Christ in his death. You have, have had your sins so eradicated and separated from you as far as the east is from the west that you can be free of all shame, all nagging sense of inadequacy, and you can rest. How do I know that? You've been baptized. Not because of the act itself, but because of the work of Christ to which it points. Rest in his grace. So it tells us that we're dead people. It tells us that we're free people. The passage goes on to say that we have been set free. We are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We have been set free, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. We're no longer slaves. And I think very much connected to this first idea of the, of the shame and the, the sense of inadequacy, there are times where we maybe make a little baby step and we start to say, okay, just maybe my past sins, my past failure could be forgiven by God's grace. But from now on, it's on me. And there's the comment, there's a comment that a student made in class a couple weeks ago that has just been rattling around in my mind for a couple weeks because I think it gave voice to what so many of you feel. She said that, that I believe I was forgiven by God's grace and that the death of Jesus dealt with my sin. But sometimes it feels growing up in church that like the death of Jesus is kind of held over my head. And it's like, you better, you better not sin. Jesus died for you. And the whole spirit of this passage is not that Jesus died for you, so you better not sin. The message of this passage is that Jesus died for you. You don't have to sin. You're no longer shackled by sin. You have a new spirit-empowered life that you can walk in full of joy, full of peace, full of the knowledge that that His favor rests on you. You have been so united with Him in His death and in His resurrection that His destiny is now your destiny. Where He goes, you go. His life is your life. And the favor of the Father that rests on Him rests on you. So it's not that you better not sin. It's you don't have to sin because you are a free person. There's this interesting and troubling phenomenon in our society that that people who go to prison end up back in prison. It's this amazing thing. 50%, over slightly over 50% of people who are let out of prison get arrested within a year of being let out. And this is this troubling and, and confusing phenomenon because I think most of us, if we sit here and think about prison life, 
having our rights taken away from us, living in cement buildings. Some of you think I'm talking about dorm life on, on OCC's campus. No. But, but being behind bars, getting told where to go and where to stand and what to eat. Most of us would think if I had that kind of freedom stripped away from me, the last place on the planet I would want to go again would be prison once I get let out. Yet unfortunately it is the case that living in that, that mindset of a, of a prisoner and, and knowing no other way of life of, than crime and, and prison, people oddly almost feel more comfortable there. And there's a, some percentage of people that even intentionally commit crimes to go back in, if you can believe it. But I, I just think what a powerful phenomenon to consider that someone has been in prison and then upon being let out of those prison gates within a year turns back right around and goes back through those doors and imprisons themselves once again. Paul is saying, don't you know that as a person who has been set free, you do not have to live like a prisoner anymore. And it's interesting because he'll say there's, there's a couple types of prison. Some of you maybe grew up in a, in a background of legalism and your prison is actually legalism. That it's manageable, it's predictable, go here, go there. This type of, of slavery is comfortable for you. And he'll have something to say about that in chapter 7, that once you've got, if you, the law is only applicable to you if you're alive, but you died. So it's no longer applicable to you. But there's also the prison of lawlessness. Giving into every urge that we have, giving into the dynamics of sin which should no longer have power over us. And so whether your prison is legalism or your prison is lawlessness, neither of those prisons make sense for a free person. And Paul is saying, you are a free person. You are a person that's been set free from slavery. Live like it. Enjoy it. And it's no, it's not a freedom where you do whatever you want. It's still a type of Slavery, he says, to slavery to righteousness. But righteous slavery to righteousness and freedom are used as synonyms in these passages. That you are now free to live a life empowered by the Spirit. Chapter 8, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Take advantage of it. Act like it. And our baptism is this moment that we look back to to say, Oh yeah, I don't have to go to prison again. I don't have to live like that anymore. I can be encouraged and know that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within me. And I'm learning to breathe like a newborn baby, to breathe in the spirit and live accordingly. How do I know that you are a free person? How do I know that you do not any longer have to live shackled by sin? You were baptized. Not because of the act itself, but because of the work of Christ to which it points. Walk in freedom. Walk in His power. Now there's one more feature to this passage that, uh, that I want to point out in terms of our theology of baptism. And it's not really any particular line in this passage, but it's th- really threaded through every line of this passage. And that is the fact that we are a new community. We are a dead people. We are a free people. 
We are a new community. Now, where do I get that? I get it from a grammatical feature. I'm hitting you with some grammar today. Grammar, anybody? Amen? I thought it like two or three amens from the English people, but no luck. The entire passage is plural. You, for our Texans, y'all, right? We, we all. Now, I would hesitate to make a whole point from a grammatical feature if it hadn't been attested to elsewhere in Scripture, but of course, it is attested numerous times that our baptism points to the fact that we are a new community. When we look at Acts 2.41, practically speaking in the narrative, it says those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How do we know you're a part of this community? You were baptized. But theologically speaking, this is the grounds of our unity. We got a chance to touch on this earlier in the semester in Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if if I'm united with Christ in His death and resurrection, and you're united with Christ in His death and resurrection, I guess we ought to be united with one another. And Galatians 3 explains the same dynamic. It says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your language, your ethnicity, your economic background. This new people are one in Christ. And part of our symbol to help us get our minds around the fact that we are this new people is our baptism. And isn't it interesting that, again, God in His wisdom, He knows us, He knows what we need reminders sometimes. Isn't it interesting that Christian baptism always involves one person baptizing another person? My youngest son was was convinced that he had been baptized, even though he hadn't. He was just he was just sure of it. And he, him, and my my middle son both would be they were real interested in baptism for a while. That's what they called it. And uh, I don't know why they where they got baptism. I think it was because when we were little, they lived in we were living in Japan, and everybody they ever saw got saw get baptized got baptized in a bathtub, and so they just thought it was baptism. But I remember one day Judas asking me, he was like, "So in baptism, uh, you go all the way under the water, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, well, you know, the Greek word baptizo means immerse and quick, you know." <laughs> quick church history lesson that it, the normative method was always immersion uh, there were certain exceptions made clinical uh, baptisms where people couldn't access the water and, and so I gave him a quick church history lesson uh, and I said but but you know the main method is yeah to go completely under the water and he was like I'm pretty sure I've been baptized because at the pool, I went all the way under once. And sometimes when I'm in the bath, I just go all the way under. And so he thought that counted. And uh, of course, there's a variety of things that are, that are cute and childish about that. But 
of course, one glaring issue is that you don't accidentally get baptized on your own sometime. It has always been, by God's design, a, a communal event where one believer helps another believer experience tangibly through this immersive experience in water a death and rebirth. Now Paul in 1 Corinthians is emphatic about the fact now it doesn't matter which person baptizes you. There were people going around kind of bragging about I got baptized by Paul, I got baptized by Apollos, I got baptized by Peter. He says emphatically that it doesn't matter which name it is that baptized you. But isn't it interesting that we all have a name? We could all say the name of the person who baptized us. For me, that's David Adams. Who is it for you? Let's hear the names. Just yell it out. Say the name. Yell it out. Let's hear the name. Numerous people of God who were faithful and helped us along the way. Many of whom none of us here in this room will ever meet. Yet somebody cared enough to step into our lives and be there with us in this moment. You see, part of what our baptism tells us is we're in this together. How do I know that you are a part of the same people, this same new community, this new family that I'm a part of? Even though we're from very different places and very different backgrounds and we've got different languages even represented in this room. How do I know that we are part of the same people? We've been baptized. Not because of the act itself, but because of the work of Christ to which it points. Baptism tells us who we are. We need it as an anchor in our lives to know we're no longer controlled by the dynamics of sin, the guilt of sin, the shame and, and, and remorse and, and uh, pain of sin. We can stand in confidence knowing that we're loved and forgiven. We can walk forward with freedom knowing that we do not need to go back through those prison doors. We do not need to be controlled by legalism or lawlessness. We're free people. And we're in this together. Because we got baptized. So rest in His grace today. Walk in His power. Let's pray. God, I just thank You so much for this tangible experience You've given us. Not that You needed us to jump through some hoop, but that You know us and You gave it to us as a gift, a promise, an anchor. That from that day on, we can look back and say, I'm Yours. The old me died. I've been united with you profoundly and mysteriously in your death and resurrection. And so therefore, I am a free person. I'm a new person. I'm a part of a family of new people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, every uh, economic level, every ethnicity. It doesn't matter. We're a new people in you. Bonded to Christ, empowered by the Spirit. Help us to rest in your grace and walk in your power today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.